0: following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. y'all if you have your bibles and i hope you do would you open them up to luke chapter one the gospel of luke chapter one is where we're going to be this morning uh luke uh, it, there's hardback black bibles under every single chair if you need a, a bible you can open a phone or a tablet luke in those black bibles is on page 855 um luke chapter one's where we're going to be Uh, As you are turning there, uh, more than any time of the year, Christmas is the time um, where we're actually sold false realities all the time. Like all through this season, we are are sold false realities. You are constantly being sold that if you could just break the Christmas code or like figure out the Christmas Rubik's Cube for your life, then you can have it all. Listen to me, you can have the perfect Christmas. Christmas that's what's being sold to us. Every commercial every 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 place you uh, go to shop, they're all trying to sell the idea that you can have the perfect Christmas. This is the year when it's all going to come together for you. It didn't come together last year or by the way any other year in your entire life, but this is the year, right? This is the year where you're going to get the red rider BB gun. It's going to happen. You know, this is the year where you're going to get that bonus check from your boss so you can finally put that pool in the backyard. You got it, right? This is the year that dad is finally going to stop neglecting me to sell those bad children's books and instead turn his affections towards me, even though I've been living in the North Pole for 40 years. It's the year. It's the promise. It's being sold to you, okay? That's what's being fed to us. The misfits just need to be given a chance and they'll save Christmas. Right? The green guy's heart just needs to grow three sizes and then everything's all better. right? That ghetto little tree just needs a blankie around its base and all will be calm and all will be bright and everybody will be happy and it'll start snowing on Christmas Eve at midnight, except this year because it'll be a balmy 60. <laughs> and nothing really paints this picture for us quite like um, one channel that makes Christmas movies available year-round and you know what channel i'm talking about correct the hallmark channel all right okay um in a moment of honesty this is church i know it's no place to be honest but if you were honest for a moment by a show of hands who uh really likes to watch christmas movies on hallmark just this is a safe place okay no judgment here this is a safe place to admit it no that's a lie actually the elders are taking down names and we're gonna start (laughs) church discipline with you uh in the new year My wife loves them, okay? I've watched a bunch of these, and I just want to tell you, every single Hallmark Christmas movie is the exact same movie. It's the exact same, okay? Here's the rundown. You got a main character who's a woman named Noelle or Holly or Carol. You following me there? Okay, okay? She's from a big city. She's an executive in this big city, but she ends up by some strange happenstance in a small town two weeks before Christmas. We don't know how she got there, but she's there in the small town and Carol has a boyfriend back in the city, all right? He also is well put together and career oriented and he tries to convince her throughout the the film uh, to return to the city from the irrelevance of this ghetto small town that she is in, okay? Enter Nick... Joseph or Rudolph, all right? He's the hunky small town guy who works at the Christmas tree lot, is a volunteer firefighter on the side, and has volunteered to help with the Christmas's town pageant. Plus he's incredibly good with kids and he must work out a lot because bros fit, right? Rudy is also the grandson of the, the town mailman who's a rather short, Heavy-set man with a long white beard, who's seemingly magical and suspiciously jolly. Okay. Well, Carol, um, Carol ends up helping Rudy with the pageant, um, and after a series of events where she finds herself thinking to herself, "Man, he just gets me." They are standing. In the town square Staring at the huge Christmas tree On Christmas Eve And in a magical moment when, when a really bad instrumental version Of Deck the Hall Starts coming on in the background In that moment It starts snowing And they kiss And then they flash to the mailman grandpa And he winks Okay And then Rudy says this line You really are My Christmas Carol <laughs> Cut to the credits. They're all the same. You don't even need to, you can, you can cancel cable because I've just given you the plot of every single Christmas Hallmark movie ever, okay? All these things are pointing to a longing that is actually in our hearts for a perfect Christmas. And while I don't think that the longing is a bad thing, I do think it sets us up for some pretty unrealistic expectations. And today in our text, in Luke chapter one, I want to look actually at the beginning of this whole Christmas story um, in the gospel of Luke. And and I want to propose this morning that our aim shouldn't be for the perfect Christmas, but rather for an ordinary Christmas. That's what I want to try and convince you of this morning, that perfect Christmas doesn't exist but an ordinary Christmas is somewhere where God works and where God is at work for us. So let's dig into our text, okay? Luke chapter one, we're gonna begin in in verse five. Luke one, five. So follow along in your text. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Okay. This ordinary Christmas begins with two ordinary people ordinary people. We are introduced to the two characters in this story, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they are ordinary. They're ordinary people. A couple of things to note about these two, okay? First, Zechariah was just an ordinary priest. Now, you think maybe priest and you think, man, that guy is legit. But I just want to say this. There were an estimated 8,000 priests living in Palestine at this time. So it's not like he's one in 10 or one in 30. He's one in 8,000, one in 8,000. So he's an ordinary priest. Second, it says that Elizabeth was barren, barren. Okay. Uh, an ordinary life would have produced a woman who wasn't barren or maybe she was, but ordinarily women would, um, would bear children, especially in this cultural context. You, you didn't choose not to have kids. You had kids or you were unable to have kids. But in, in, in this story, we are told that Elizabeth is unable to. She was barren, not by choice, just it's how it played out for her. Third, we're told that they are advanced in years. That's what the text says. And so more than just being barren, Elizabeth is now past the age of childbearing. And we don't know exactly how old they are. Um, probably because it was as as inappropriate uh, back then as it is today to ask a woman how old she is. So I'm just guessing. They're just like, yeah, she's just old. Advanced in age, you know? Nobody knows exactly how to tiptoe around what do you call somebody who's old? They're just old, okay? So she's old, and it shows us something really important. Just the first few verses of this shows us something really important. And that's that the Lord works through long, ordinary lives of ordinary people. There's nothing inherently special about Zechariah and Elizabeth on first glance. That's what we're seeing here in the text. So let's keep going. Look at verse eight. Now, while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, so let me give you some background on how this is all working uh, in Palestine in this time. Okay, there are 8,000 priests in the area. Of those 8,000 priests, they are divided into 24 divisions within those 8,000, with about 300 or so uh, priests in each division, okay? And then each division would serve in the temple at Jerusalem for two one-week periods each year. They would actually travel from wherever they are in that area to Jerusalem two weeks out of the year, okay? And then when they were there in Jerusalem, of those three to 400 who were in that division for each day, 56 priests are chosen by lot to participate in the ministry each day. And there's a 56, apparently, different things that you need to be doing each day at the temple. And then before each of the two daily services, within those 56, they would cast lots again to determine the four service participants. Those who would do something very special and very unique within that. This is why you pay me to go to seminary. That's exactly why right there. Okay. All of this now, listen, all of this is ordinary priestly activity, ordinary priest, priestly activity. They're ordinary people doing ordinary jobs. And so, so thinking about this for a second, when I talk about ordinary to people at our church, I like to say that most of life is pretty ordinary. Like most of life is lived on Tuesday. I just, I know it's one in seven, but like Tuesday. Okay, let me explain. Monday is the worst day. We most, mostly agree, right? I mean, you don't even have to talk about it. How you doing? Well, it's Monday. Say no more, right? Monday's the worst, okay? Wednesday is hump day, right? That camel taught us that. It's hump day, okay? We're halfway to the weekend, Thursday, there's hope, okay? Inertia is picking up towards the weekend. Friday is pretty much the weekend. People cut out early, and that's why traffic stinks from 2 p.m. on, on Fridays, right? Saturday's a day off to hang out, to recreate, to do projects, whatever. Sunday, I mean, you're here on a Sunday, so that means you probably involve some sort of like God stuff on your Sunday. Maybe it's your Sabbath, maybe it's your rest day, okay? And then, uh, and then Tuesday, Tuesday is just kind of like the middle of the week. It's kind of like the worst day of the week. It's not high. It's not Monday. It's not low, right? It's just ordinary. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. And church, most of our lives are lived on Tuesday. Most of your life is just a Tuesday, okay? You're not always in the pit of Mondays. There's seasons where it feels like it, but it's not normally your whole life that's lived in that place, nor do we always have these like spiritual highs of like a Sunday, like a day with the Lord, a Sabbath, a rest, a refreshment. Nor is it always the fun of like a Friday or a Saturday. But most of life is just ordinary Tuesdays, just kind of ordinary. And in our story, this ordinary Tuesday, it says that the incense lot fell to Zechariah, our ordinary priest. And this is one thing to note this would have been an extraordinary moment for Zechariah. In his ordinary priesting, in his ordinary life, in his ordinary work, all of a sudden, the greatest moment of his priestly career has shown up because the honor of offering incense at the temple was the grandest event in the ministry for priests. Many priests would never have this privilege. The lot, as it were, would never fall to them. And by the way, no priest was allowed to do this more than one time. They were no longer eligible once they've done this once. This means this has never happened before. Zechariah is old. The text tells us he is old. And he's never been inside the holies to light that incense. So it's never happened before. And by the way, it'll never happen again. So you don't mess this one up. You know, we say this as a preacher, Sunday's coming. I can totally botch the sermon, but Sunday's coming. Not for this guy. This is his only chance to do this. So Zechariah makes his way through the outer court of the temple, past the text says a multitude of worshipers who are praying for that moment of the incense offering and then he gets into the inner court. And the time comes when, once he's in the inner court, where the priests are all kind of doing their thing, he gets to move into the holy place within the temple. And here's what he would have seen if he were walking into the holy place. This is where he's never been before in his life. And he wanders in and he would see, he'd go in there. And the first thing he would see is a big curtain. And that curtain is what divides the holy place from the holy of holies. And he would never go in there. He'd never dream of going in there. Only the high priest, one day a year on Yom Kippur, only the high priest of Israel would go in there to to offer a sacrifice because that's where God's presence dwelt. That's where the ark was. That's where that seat was, where those cherubim are holding over the top of that seat. That's where they believed that God was on earth in the Holy of Holies. So he'd see that curtain though. and, And you imagine the reverence and the awe he would experience in that moment. He walks into the holy place and to the left would have been a table called the table of showbread where the priestly bread would be sitting. To his right would have been the golden candlestick. And then in front of him would have been the horned golden altar of incense. And so Zechariah would have purified that altar. And then he would have waited for the signal from the priests outside to actually offer the incense so that as the sacrifices were were going up to God and as the prayers of the multitudes were going up to God, they were wrapped up in the sweet incense, the smell, the aroma of worship to Yahweh. All ordinary, all Tuesday. But then something unexpected happens on this ordinary day. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. That's what we just talked about. So he's to the right of the altar of incense. That means he's hanging out somewhere near the candle, just for reference. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah And he will go before them, uh, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Okay. In the very moment of the pinnacle of his priestly career, it says an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And it says that Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, right? Yeah, that's. I think that's biblical understatement. Luke's just kind of like, yeah, I was troubled. And you're in trouble at that point, right? An angel shows up and it says that fear fell upon him. And the angel comforts Zechariah by saying, hey, don't be afraid, your prayer has been heard. Now, here's the question we have to ask textually here. What prayer has been answered. Because, you know, with all the setup concerning Elizabeth's barrenness, uh, it could mean that Zechariah was praying for a kid. In fact, the next words that the angel says is, Elizabeth will bear you a son. She's gonna have a child. So is it the prayer that he's been praying for a son, or could it be a reference to what Zechariah was just immediately praying for right there as he is doing his priestly duties and lighting the incense, which would have been a prayer of redemption for Israel, a prayer for God to show up and do something to save his people. There's a little bit of debate on this, okay, but I think it seems to refer to the priestly prayer that Zechariah had just uttered. I think that's the prayer that the angel is saying. God has heard your prayer because here's what's happening Zechariah is asking God to redeem Israel. He's asking God to cast off the occupation of Rome. He's asking God to help in the oppression of God's people. He's saying, God, come and fix this place. Come and fix these things. You ever pray? those kinds of prayers. God, fix this. God, this mess that I'm in, fix it. Lord, my friend, my family member, I need you to fix them. But how many of you know that God very often doesn't fix things? He forms things. I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I talked about fruit, this idea that that very often we ask God for fruit. We pray to God for fruit. We ask him to fix something and bring us fruit. And then he answers us with seeds. Remember this illustration? If you were here, probably not. We ask for fruit. God gives us seeds and we say, no, 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 no. I didn't ask for seeds. I wanted fruit. And God says, that's how you get fruit. I'm going to form that This is that same thing here. Zechariah is asking God to restore Israel. He's asking for fruit. He's asking God to fix everything, but instead of fixing it, he promises a baby. And never in Zechariah's wildest dreams would he have thought that he having a son would be the beginning of the answer to his prayer for the redemption of Israel never would have dreamed that that was the answer that he needed. And then what's Zechariah's response to such an angelic prophecy? Well, look at verse 18. So Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He's not even willing to tell how old she is, right? Right? I'm old, she's advanced. How's this gonna work, God? And it brings me to the second part of this ordinary Christmas, okay? Because Zechariah is an ordinary man and he's in ordinary life and he's doing his ordinary job, and then God shows up and just blows up his ordinary. God regularly works through ordinary people, but here's part two they often respond with ordinary doubt. They often respond with doubts. Zechariah responds with disbelief. How? How? By the way, he shouldn't have. He's a priest, number one. Number two, there's a rich history in the Old Testament of barren women, advanced in age, with an angel showing up and telling them they're going to have a baby. They doubt, God gives them a little backhand, and then the baby comes. He should have known better, but he has a doubt. He doubts, he questions, he takes almost like an offense at this, right? And why does he doubt? Well, I think because this is probably the rawest, kind of softest, most difficult part of his life. I think that's why Luke brings up all that stuff about barrenness and advanced in age. The angel answers his prayer for Israel with a promise of a son. And so the question is this, how long do you think Zechariah has been praying for a son? And oh, by the way, how long do you think it's been since he stopped praying that one? Thinking we're past it. Guess I'm not getting that answered. See, this is why I don't think he's praying for a child in this moment. I think he's long since given up on that dream. His wife is barren and too old to have kids. Oh, he used to pray that prayer. 20, 30, 40 years ago, they were praying for a boy, but he prayed and he prayed and he prayed to no avail and it hurts. And now the angel brings up that hurt as an answer to his new prayer prayer. And Zechariah doubts. See how this is all fitting together? So basically what's happened here is you've got a man who, by the way, Luke said, is historically had a great deal of faith, right? When pressed by God in the most sensitive place in his life, he is vocal about his doubts that God could even do anything about it. And so God is going to rebuke him. We'll see this in verse 19. Verse 19. He says, how shall I know this? Well, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This is the first time we've heard from God in 400 years, by the way. He's been silent for 400 years. This is the first message from Yahweh to his people, to a priest in almost half a millennia. And only now, at this moment, does he tell us who he is. Does the angel give his name? He says, I'm Gabriel. Now, listen. Maybe that means something to you. Maybe you picture like little baby floating around with wings or like precious moments. That's not who Zechariah would have pictured when he hears, I'm Gabriel. He would have known Gabriel from the visions of Daniel as the revealer of dreams. This is Gabriel. The, he would have known him from the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel as the destroyer of Jerusalem. Zechariah would have known who Gabriel was and it would have only freaked him out more. If he was afraid before, he is definitely afraid now. And the penalty for Zechariah's unbelief is that it's well fitted for his offense because the tongue that had actually betrayed him and uttered his disbelief is now stuck, struck speechless. We'll actually see in a little bit that he's actually struck from being able to hear as well. He's not only mute, he is deaf for these next nine months. And He would be confined to his own little silent world for the period that Elizabeth is pregnant. He would have had time to reflect on this situation. Now, here's the application for us, okay? There's a discipline that happens here. God disciplines his doubt, but please note that Zechariah's doubt doesn't disqualify him from God's plan. The angel doesn't say, oh, you doubt? I'll go find me another old guy. It's not what he does. There is discipline, but it's not disqualification. Many of us came from Christian upbringings where doubts and questionings are some, somehow like a taboo. Where if you have doubts about the things that we try to believe, you're somehow like punished or you're somehow wrong or you're somehow taboo. You should be ashamed of yourself. But, but I wanna just offer the perspective that in this ordinary Christmas, part of ordinary is having ordinary doubts. It's ordinary. The guy who shouldn't doubt, doubt it. So I often point out the apostle Thomas. This is, there's a rich history of doubters in the Bible, right? I often point out Thomas. You remember his nickname? Yeah, Doubting, Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Uh, do you know why Thomas doubted? You remember the story? Um, it's because he didn't believe his friends when they told him that Jesus was alive after he had witnessed Jesus being crucified by the Roman empire, who by the way, they didn't botch many of them. They were experts at killing people. He watched his savior die. And then his buddies come three days later and they're like, he's alive again. And he doubts. He gets the nickname Doubting Thomas for that, like for all of eternity for that one instance, right? Right? He doesn't believe that a guy came back from the dead, which listen to me, doesn't happen very often. Even back then. Seems like a rational doubt, but it's ordinary. It's ordinary doubt. And by the way, God Jesus does not chastise him for it. He doesn't. Another one that I love in the New Testament, uh, it's less known, but I think you, you'll like this one as well, it comes in Matthew's gospel. Uh, here's what has happened. Jesus has resurrected from the dead, okay? He's appeared to a number of guys, a number of different times. In fact, he actually appears to Thomas later and clears the whole mess up, okay? But now Jesus is going to meet up with his disciples one last time. And then the plan is he's gonna ascend up to heaven. And so as he starts ascending, he says this, or it says this in Matthew 28. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I love that verse. How crazy is it that while Jesus is floating through the air, there are some who are like, "Mm, not too sure. (laughs) Think I saw David Blaine do this on YouTube, right? (laughs) I mean, they doubted. Listen, if you have doubts, you would make a great disciple of Jesus. These are ordinary doubts, but what you do with your doubts defines so much of what happens next. Okay. So what is Zechariah going to do? What's he going to do with his doubts? Well, let's finish out our text. Okay. Look at verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he had come out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and they kept making sign and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Verse 24, after these days, his wife, Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In this ordinary Christmas, we see God working through ordinary people and their ordinary doubts, but their response is ordinary obedience. Ordinary obedience. See, Zechariah doesn't allow his doubts to derail his faith, which happens all too often. Rather, He practices obedience, ordinary obedience that changed the course of history. Like, I I mean, that's what was read. Brooke read over us Luke chapter one, a little bit later in Luke chapter one, where Elizabeth will give birth. And here's the story all of her friends and family are hanging out around her, rejoicing at this point because it's a miracle. I mean, not only was she barren early in life, but she is now way too old to have any kids. And when grandma has a baby, we're gonna party. I mean, that's it's weird even then, okay? When it comes time to name the child that says the son was born and it comes time to name the child, they would have all assumed that Elizabeth would have named the child Zechariah after his father, That's how it would have worked. That's how the tradition was. But she says, no, 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 call him John. And they're like, oh gosh. All right, Lizzie, hey, real quick. Ain't nobody in your family named John. Grandma's getting senile at this point. Like you just had a baby. Maybe it's tough. I get it. But like, come on now. So they turn to Zechariah. Turn to this guy who, you know, can't talk. And they probably assume he'd be offended. This is his boy. This is his heritage this is the promised son and so is he going to be offended well the text says they make signs to him this is why we know he is as well deaf and mute you don't make signs to somebody who can hear right? this is offensive do you understand the words that are right? like, like that's that's not that's so he is mute and deaf he's been in this like kind of silent place months of reflecting on the decades and decades of disappointment that he felt about not having a son. And then they show up in his doubts and they ask him about the child's name and he's just processing all of this. And look at what he says, Luke 1, 63 and 64. He asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke Blessing God. Ordinary obedience. His name is John. You got Zechariah who's walked through close to, I don't know, 100 years of difficulty, waiting and praying for a child. And he believes that God is good and he believes that God is merciful and he believes that God can save. He believes all these things about God. And for his whole life, he's taught these things and he said these things and he's walked in these things. And the text even said that he was righteous and blameless. And yet God never answered their prayer about a son. God never answered their prayer about having children And then finally, when the angel shows up and God sends them a message, when they're told it's possible, Zechariah doubts and God rebukes him. And now he's had time to wrestle with it. He's had time to marinate in the shame that he felt probably. And the frustration, the feelings of stupidity that accompanied such doubts. And what's Zechariah's ultimate response? Well, it's obedience. His name is John. God works through ordinary people who have ordinary doubts and are willing to trust him in ordinary obedience. So this year, instead of hoping for a perfect Christmas, trying to get all those things in a row and make all the right cookies and watch all the right shows and get the tree set up and the kids aren't going to complain at all. Two in the afternoon once they've ripped everything open. Seven in the morning after they've ripped everything open. It's going to be the perfect Christmas. Instead of aiming for that, what if you found yourself content with an ordinary Christmas? See, the juxtaposition that we all must live with this is is that most of life is long long boring, hard days. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Most of life is filled with normal work and normal human experience. And then there are these amazing high moments, supernatural days where God just shows up, he moves in power, and then it's back to long hard, ordinary days. But, but listen, the goal, if the goal is to always aim for those highs, for those extraordinary days, it will assure you of unmet expectations. Don't miss this. The way that God worked in Zechariah's life is the very same way we need him to work in our lives, which is in our ordinary lives. <clears throat> We need him to work on Tuesday, y'all. I need God to work in my ordinary, in my ordinary marriage, in my ordinary parenting, in my ordinary job, in my ordinary neighborhood with my ordinary friends. This is where I need God to show up because hear me, that's where I live. You say, well, (laughs) that's not how Jesus lived. What are you talking about? You read this thing? Bro dies at 33, 30 years of his life. We don't know almost anything about it. He lives in almost complete obscurity and then we have three years of records and then he dies as the savior of the world. For all the ups and downs and successes and failures, most of our lives are very ordinary. This should be a lesson for us. See, the successes of every day are the things that add up to the successes of our entire lives. Or maybe we just put it like this ordinary and greatness are not opposites. Ordinary and greatness are not opposites. Zechariah was an ordinary man with an ordinary life, and yet he was great. I think the gift of the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth that they give to us this morning is this real sobering whisper of what a gift an ordinary Christmas can be. It's messy and it's confusing and it's miraculous and it's mundane and it's extraordinary and it's ordinary, but it's filled with this beauty and this wonder. It's a gift. See, this is the hope that we have. This is our hope today, this Christmas, this week, this month, this year, even into the next year. The gift is God's probably not gonna fix everything in your life. He's probably not gonna fix everything for you to have this Christmas Christmas be that perfect Christmas, but the promise is that he will give you himself. To Zechariah, a son will be born, but to us, a son will be born. And that's going to be enough. That's going to be enough. So I want to end with this quote from Frederick Buechner. This author, he's, he's wonderful. This is what he says. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, Smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. There's a God who knows you and loves you and sees you and is working and you can trust him. And so I'm praying this Christmas be so unbelievably ordinary for you. See you Friday. Let's pray together. Father, I'm just so encouraged by this passage. One of the one of the stories that we sometimes skip over for the more famous stories when it comes to Advent and Christmas. And today I'm, I'm thankful for the ordinary lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I'm thankful for their faithfulness. I'm thankful for their trust in you. I'm thankful that they just kind of lived their lives over a long course of time, being faithful to you, following you, even in their doubts. And I would imagine that for many of us today, as we walk into this Christmas week, There's a lot of ordinary stuff that we've got going on, and we're trying to, we're just trying to muster some sort of extraordinary. We're trying to muster some sort of perfection. And I just pray that this text kind of takes us off the hook for that. That it's in the ordinary that that you show up and that you minister and that you work. And then, Father, I would imagine that there are some in this room today. Who this week isn't, they're, they're not aiming for perfect, they're aiming for survival. The deepest, rawest, softest, softest areas in their hearts are being pushed, and and there's pain, and there's there's hurt, and there's there's doubt. And maybe this Christmas you're showing up and and you're poking and you're prodding, and you might even be disciplining. But Lord, I pray that that you would comfort us again with this story, that even in this first Christmas, that that as John doubts, he picks up those doubts and he follows. He doesn't disqualify over his doubt, but rather he follows it with obedience. I pray for comfort for people today, that there are men and women and students in this place who need encouragement as they wander into the, the hardest week So, Father, we trust you with these things. We trust you with our ordinary. And, Lord, let us not think that that ordinary and greatness are opposed here. But but help us to put our faith and our trust in a baby. In the most unlikely of places for your redemption to be found was a baby born in a manger to peasants. Come, let us adore him. We pray it in his name and by the power of the Spirit.